Hello, and welcome to another episode of GDPR Now, a podcast dedicated to all things related to data security and data privacy, brought to you by Data Protection for Business, and this is DPO. Your host today is me, Karen Heaton, owner of Data Protection for Business, recording from my home office in southwest London. This episode is part of our series of updated podcasts addressing security and privacy concerns resulting from the coronavirus pandemic and the shift in working practices for millions of businesses across the UK and the world. In this episode, we're going to discuss personal data in detail and explore the question of whose data is it anyway? a topic which is very important given the adoption of track and trace apps in many countries across the world. So across the airwaves, we are delighted to have Phil Brown, the Norfolk Data Protection Mardler, a fellow data privacy professional who may not take himself too seriously, but does take data privacy very seriously. Phil has travelled around the world, including Taiwan, and currently helps businesses in Norfolk with data protection compliance and advice. So, Phil, tell us a bit about your mardling in Norfolk, please. <laughs> well, thanks, Karen. A great introduction. Yes, mardling, the word mardle is a, is a local word in Norfolk, and it just means to, to natter or to chat. And uh, one of the reasons why I <laughs> use the word mardler in, in, in my uh, trading name is really to encourage uh, companies, businesses in Norfolk to realize that data protection isn't something that needs to be feared as such, but it is something that needs to be talked about. And so my approach is to encourage the discussion to break down the barrier of fear or doubt or, or, or whatever, so that I can have a conversation, introduce them to the, to the idea of the, the relevance of data protection within their businesses, and, and then take it to the next step. So the modeling is very much a word to, to, to pivot on, if you like, to to then get, go to the next stage in terms of um, simply talking about it. Well, it's, it's perfect for our chat today. That's exactly what we're going to do. We're going to have a joint model. <laughs> this would be great. Having a model, yes. So uh, you made an important point there, which is about encouraging businesses to talk about data protection and take away some of the fear and actually also some of the complexity. Yes, yes. You have to de- I think people like us have to demystify the law uh, and really to calm people's fears down and to say, look, actually, it is complex in some respects, but as far as your business is concerned, it doesn't have to be that difficult. And if mm-hmm. I explain it to them then and break it down, then hopefully they will realize that there are more advantages for doing it than to simply try and avoid doing it. Yeah, totally agree. It's a great approach. So let's start with what is personal data and is it something we own? Fortunately, legislation, the GDPR in particular, defines it for us, although it's still of limited use. It simply says that personal data means any information relating to an identified or identifiable natural person, referred to in our parlance of data subject. Um, An identifiable natural person is one who can be identified directly or indirectly. So, And then there's a bit more as well. But essentially, stuff that, that can be used to identify us. And it sounds straightforward, but we have to understand the context in which data um, is used. And collected, perhaps, as well. And also what other information you may have access to that might corroborate the information you already have. So, for example, your vehicle registration number. If I just see your vehicle in the street and I have no other knowledge, 
it doesn't connect me to you, or it doesn't connect the, the registration number to you. But on the other hand, if I had access to the database that parking companies have, then absolutely I could. So at that stage, perhaps the, the registration number is your is personal data in that context. Uh, and the other thing to add is that there are two categories. There's, there's the bog standard data, if you like, personal data, our contact details. And then the stuff that's referred to as um, special category or formerly known as sensitive data, which is about health, biometrics, um, those sort of things where, where they're used to identify as uh, identify an individual. So, uh, yeah, so that's that's what personal data is. And obviously, this processing of sensitive data or special category data carries a higher burden for a lot of organisations because fines can be more if there's a data breach of that type of data, etc. Yes, yes. After all, if an organisation loses something which is uh, sensitive to, to you, uh, stuff which perhaps you would not like to be uh, made publicly available so readily, then yes, then an organisation must take greater uh, measures to prevent that from happening. Uh, and and the consequences of getting it wrong are commensurately greater as well. But on yeah. the subject of whose data is it anyway, certainly when I, when I set out on my data protection um, career some some time ago, I took took the assumption that personal data, by the very words being used, are personal to me, and therefore they belong to me. Mm-hmm. And I come to realise that's not really the case. After all, there are attributes about our our being, facts about us of which we have little or no influence. For example, you know, the day we're born, the, the, the day we die, and, and, and lots of things that happen in between. So to say that we own the data, we certainly don't own it in, in the, it's not a tangible asset in, in the sense of owning a car or um, a mortgage or a house or something of that nature. It, it's very much um, an attribute that belongs to us. And, uh, and it's used by, by many, many organizations, <laughs> far more than we'd probably like to think. Um, yes. Without quite legitimately, without necessarily as being asked the question if it's okay to use. Yeah, this is a really interesting point because not many people think about the fact that it, it isn't necessarily a tangible asset for us to use ourselves, and actually, it's other organisations that use it to do the admin or the administrative aspects of our lives so thinking of it in those abstract terms is it's just another way of looking at it and it helps perhaps in understanding some of the data protection legislation that's come come into force recently yes i suppose you could go down the line of um uh, intellectual property rights and claiming that uh, you, no one can use your name, let's say, like Madonna, is, is, a, is, a, is a name associated with only one person in the world. Or, or, but, but if you look in the in the legislation itself, there's no reference to personal data belonging or being owned by the individual either. So mm-hmm. it is very much a case of there are facts about us, and and it is what it is to use a sort of local Norfolk yeah. question. <laughs> it's used a lot here as well, actually. <laughs> so organisations can use our data, and those organisations are usually called data controllers. So how, how does that work then? Well, any organisation that's using our data has to have a, a lawful basis for doing so. It's based in law. You can't, you can't simply say, I want to use your data just in case or because that's what it is. And they have to find a reason. And, and the reasons are based in law and those are well-defined 
in the Data Protection Act and, and the, uh, the GDPR as well. So the very fact that we have data protection laws um, creates, uh, uh, creates a framework in which our personal data can be used. And when it is misused, there's a framework then for, uh, for a punishment, in effect. Our address. Yeah. So what about that power balance between data subjects and the data that they don't perhaps actually own, but is given to other organizations to process on our behalf? Well, one of the, one of the aspects of data protection law is that it, in, it, whether it's designed or not, it does actually create um, or tries to redress the balance of power, the imbalance of mm-hmm. power, um, I would say, through the reaffirming the existing uh, or the previously existing rights and then extending them as well. And we've had rights in this country over our data since the first Data Protection Act in 1984. So yeah. that's that's quite some time ago. But how much of this is known by the population generally is, is perhaps less known, but it is increasingly the case that people are becoming more aware of their rights. And whilst these rights are caveated in the sense that, yes, people can ask for this and they can ask for that, they can ask for their a copy of their data, for example, they can ask the rights to, to erasure or to be forgotten. It's not always the case that a, an organization has to fulfill the request, mm-hmm. but at least they have the rights. And, and there's a mechanism yeah. where if they're not happy with that, they can take it to the next level, to the supervisory um, authority, in this case, the Information Commissioner's Office. Um, and I think also the fact that the businesses are themselves subject to much greater scrutiny now, they're much, they have to be much more accountable for the way yeah. in which they detail process and look after our data. Um, again, it, it means that there is an onus of responsibility on them, which they hadn't felt before. And this only serves to redress the balance of power, if you like, between those that control the data and those people who's, and, the, and for the people whose data they are using. Yeah, that's really well said and a point well made. I mean, you think the the publicity around GDPR coming into force a couple of years ago really raised data protection awareness to a level that I haven't seen, certainly in the last 20 or so years working in and around financial services, for example. So I think it's been really timely, especially given where the world is as a result of the coronavirus pandemic. Um, and the responses that governments have had to take in order to deal with the disease. Uh, and, and that kind of brings us into, you know, potential invasions of privacy and, and data needed for things like track and trace apps and, and the programs within which those apps work. Well, what are your views on that? Well, my first thought is, thank goodness we have um, data protection law yeah. because, um we now have a, a government organization that's trying to create or has created a mechanism whereby they are going to collect people's data in a variety of ways um, in a way which we haven't had we haven't experienced before and without the um, without the data protection legislation in the background which is very much designed mm-hmm. to prevent the abuse and misuse of our data whether that's accidentally or through malicious intent then uh, governments could run amok and say, look, we're just going to collect all this data. We don't care what you think. We think our reason for doing so is far more important than any rights that you may consider. And what we have seen, I think, in the last um, couple of months is that there have been uh, lobbies from the um, from people interested in, in, in the data protection side to say, hey, come on, no, this is not, this is not reasonable. You, know, you must put the safeguards in place. And, and, and that's, in other words, it's the check and the balance to prevent... Mm-hmm. 
um, total misuse of the data, whether it was intentional or, or otherwise. So I think that's, um, I think at least we have the laws in place. And, yeah. and whilst the government may always find a reason how to get around the law, at least they are in place in, from the, in the first place. And one of the big things, certainly in, in, from post-GDPR um, era, is that of transparency. Yeah, absolutely. Transparency is key at this point in time. Uh, we spoke to a firm from Australia in an earlier podcast, and they were talking about the privacy impact assessment that the government had commissioned by a third party, and that was released on the same day as the app was released. And I know that in the UK, a data protection impact assessment has been done and released, and the source code for the app itself has been put out on GitHub so that IT professionals can take a look at that as well. So that all is uh, transparency in action, if you want to put it that way. It is. Um, and you could you could take the argument, as long as the, the population understands or is given the chance to understand what's going to happen with their, with their uh, personal data, um, all is well. But in fact, there's a bit more, there's obviously there's a lot more to that in terms of um, how is it going to be safeguarded mm-hmm. once the the, um, the the use has finished has been finished with hopefully that we get into a post coronavirus uh, situation fairly soon what happens to the data that's been collected in whatever way it's been collected mm-hmm. can it be repurposed lawfully um, is it going to be anonymized in such a way that it can be it sort of falls out of of, of data protection um, law if you like is no longer covered uh, and there are issues around that as well. And, and and how much is collected? And how much do we know is being collected? And who's collecting it? And who has access to that information? Mm-hmm. So it, it's um, just very quickly build up um, a list of things that you can think about. Think, well, are the measures in place? Are the technical and organizational measures in place to create that degree of confidence that when we are asked, the information, asked for the information, that we are confident that it's going to be handled? Uh, in a reasonable and not just transparent way, but in a reasonably safeguarded way um, as well. Because yes. at the end of the day, for the system to work, there has to be trust between the population and the organisation collecting the information, in this case, the government. Yeah, and that's absolutely true. I mean, the views from Australia certainly were that, you know, the app is voluntary and therefore, you know, the population wants to have that level of trust in the government and what it's going to do with their data. And it's exactly the same here. So it's really important that that transparency in terms of what is being done and how is front and foremost so that people can assess it for for their own uses. And of course, we haven't actually got to the app yet. I I know today that Maybe the end of this month, I think, is a bit later than was first hoped. And but we still have a sort of manual version of the uh, track and trace um, anyway. And and if that's successful in its own right, actually, there's you could say there's no need for a, a more elaborate app based on our mobile phone proximity, Bluetooth proximity testing at all. Because you know one of the aspects of data protection is you do what is necessary, and what is necessary is deemed to be when there's no suitable, reasonable, alternative, less intrusive way. Well, if the current system works, you don't need to go to the next and certainly a far more, potentially far more intrusive um, data collection than through mobile phone uh, data. Well, it's a real test for the UK because obviously we've never done anything like this before, uh, as have many other countries around the world. They haven't done any kind of 
test and trace or test, track and trace before. So I think it's important to get the fund foundations of how this might work in place and allow people to get used to it. Uh, but unfortunately, you know, the, the potential for scams still exist, don't they? Well, I think we're seeing it already. Putting aside uh, a mobile app for now, at the moment, the current system relies on people self-reporting and then an NHS tracker making asking some questions and saying, well, who have you met and who have you been in contact with in the previous so many days? And then that person making a phone call to to a uh, to somebody who may have been in contact with the, the said infected person. You receive a phone call out of the blue. Do you trust it? How do you trust it? Is it a scam? And there's also other text messages going in, in circulation now, which are playing on people's fears, um, encouraging uh, to click a link from a text, which of course you never, ever, ever do. Um, but <laughs> in a state of uh, alarm or fear, you might just do that. And, uh, and and that's already happening, sadly. Yeah. And what is, so not only is it bad for an individual who could be scammed for that reason, but it, it undermines the trust in the wider system. And if the, and if the scheme relies on the, the population playing in the game, as it were, but only 30% are playing it because the others aren't really wanting to join in then that actually devalues the whole purpose of doing it in the first place. And it sets back the potential progress that could be made. It so, does. so key yeah. to this is, is having faith in the system, having trust in the system. Uh, and we're not quite sure yet whether that is going to um, be the case or not. We're, we're very early days um, uh, at the moment, at least. I mean, it really is a behavioural point, isn't it? You know, this is all about how does a nation's behaviour accept or reject the need for that kind of monitoring? It does. And our behaviour is very much governed by how big we think the threat is. If we are on the point of imminent disaster, or we think within our community that that the problem is so rampant, that quite frankly, we'll do an awful lot to, to try and resolve the issue. But I think the, it's only my opinion, uh, I've got nothing to really to base it on apart from what I see in the news. But And as I see, as we ease the lockdown restrictions or the lockdown restrictions are, are eased, shall I say, as people become more casual and perhaps they fear that the, the threat level has gone down, then maybe they aren't so um, quick to, to join in and be honest, actually, because that's what it requires, and, and to play by the rules. Uh, in which case, it, once again, it, it undermines the potential progress that, that can be made. So... Big threat, people jump to it. Small threat, people sit back. And that's exactly the point that uh, was made by St. T. Law in our uh, earlier podcast about the take-up of the app. You know, the threat in Australia is very low. Mm. So, how you know, how is that going to work? Yeah. And, and if you compare the fact that, you know, in the UK and Australia, to name just a few countries, it's voluntary to participate in test track and trace whereas in somewhere like south korea it was absolutely mandatory to download and and have that app on all the time yes and i think the south korean example is um is 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 a good way to look at what happens when the government says right we're going to do it this way and the population says um, okay we, we accept that we have to do that now i have to say that conditions in south south korea Australia and the UK are, are quite different. So you can't always compare two nations. Mm-hmm. But 
Um, certainly, the measures that that they took were quite um, quite austere, you know, quite severe in terms of you, you arrive. It's very clear when you arrive in, you, you arrived into South Korea, and what was expected of you going into quarantine. You have a, a minder basically that says, right, so you know, we will be checking on you, where you are. You can you need to go and get checked within three days. That's the only reason why you can leave that particular address. Yeah. Um, high fines if you break quarantine. Uh, self-isolation being always being being monitored and it would seem that it worked to a greater extent because the rate of uh, infection um, certainly slowed down very quickly after an initial surge and that was also using in part mobile phone data so there was absolutely an intrusion of um, privacy there which I guess the vast majority of people in South Korea were were happy to um, tolerate one or two people might not be very happy when it transpires where they might have been at a certain oh, Yes. <laughs> it's always a danger. But that aside, it does appear to have worked. And, uh, and South Korea are now enjoying a level of freedom far greater than we, we, we enjoy in the UK at the moment in terms of the ability to go out and, and socialise and all the rest of it. That was a different nation's approach. And it, it, who's to say that they got it right or they got it wrong? We, they, they've got it right in the short term, at least. And, and they're cracking on with life uh, pretty well as it was before. So that big question of what it is we're prepared to accept is quite a pertinent one for the Western world, I'd suggest. It is. And again, I think it goes back to how big is the threat? If you've been personally touched by what's going on, then you, you, will, you, you are more likely to say, you know, I'm going to do this because I, either because I don't want it to happen to anybody else or because I frankly I've got nothing to hide anyway. Um, on the other hand, certainly you know where I live in North Norfolk, I think the, the, the there is a, a much lower uh, infection rate. Uh, it's much more. It's been much more slow to, um, to 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 become established at least, and it may be a slightly different attitude, a more a slightly more relaxed attitude. But at the end of the day, it's not going to be defeated through a vaccine anytime soon. So re- regardless of whether we like it or not, we are going to have to um, accept some inconvenience and in some cases, some more than others. Yes, that's going to be an interesting one to monitor over the coming months. So uh, I'm looking forward to doing that as part of our um, series of podcasts. So, Bill, that was really interesting. Thank you very much. Uh, Unfortunately, that brings us to the end of this podcast of GDPR Now for today. So Phil, if our listeners want to contact you, we have added your contact details to the show notes. Uh, Do you have any final words for listeners? Yes, that is to take take the virus very seriously still, even though though it appears that um, all the trends are going in the right direction, um, because we don't want this to, to, to come back. And if that means um, having to accept a degree of inconvenience as far as our privacy concerns is just make sure that you are aware of what it is that you're giving away or you're offering or you're being subjected to before um, before committing, before pressing the submit button to on the NHSX as and when it, it emerges. Yeah, that's a great point. We don't want more lockdowns, that's for sure. So um, if there's any issues or questions the listeners would like addressed, please send them to info at dpo4business.co.uk or if you'd like to appear in the podcast, please let us know.
So to all our listeners, thanks for listening and thanks to Phil for a thought-provoking discussion. We really appreciate it. So from me, Karen Heaton, I hope you will join us again soon. Take care. Stay safe.